I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. everyone. One of the things you've heard me talk a lot about is my interest in rituals and how having a ritual-based practice grounds my life in many different ways. So I was particularly excited to read that my friend Erica Keswin had a new book coming out that was about a roadmap to creating rituals. And while her book is focused really on how to implement rituals in the workplace, it definitely crosses over into the personal space as well. I'm excited to share this conversation with you in just a minute. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y-K-L-E-E.com backslash Heidi. And they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestincoaspen.com That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O ASPEN.com and mention that you heard about Best & Co on my podcast to receive the special discount. 
Erica Keswin is a workplace strategist who has worked for the past 20 years with some of the most iconic brands in the world as a consultant, speaker, author, and professional dot connector. Her first book, Bring Your Human to Work, 10 Surefire Ways to Design a Workplace That's Good for People, Great for Business, and Just Might Change the World, was published in 2018 and was a bestseller. Her new book, Rituals Roadmap, The Human Way to Transform Everyday Routines into Workplace Magic, is out now. She and I discuss tasting coffee, routines versus rituals, reflecting our values, family dinner, working moms, being a connector, personal missions, looking into each other's personal spaces, bringing your whole self to work things that make you feel most like you, a sense of purpose, priorities, being open, doing without a known return, and honoring relationships. I think The best question to start with is maybe sort of an obvious question, which is related to your new book, which is coming out today. How did you get interested in ritual? So I wrote a book about two and a half years ago called Bring Your Human to Work. And my background is 25 years in the in the human capital space, you know, helping companies improve performance through people. And I've worked in human resources. I've been an executive coach. And after Bring Your Human to Work came out, it's funny, I was um, had this aha moment. And it just occurred to me as I've been doing a lot of talks in, um, in, in the ramp up to the book launch that I was actually um, doing one of my monthly rituals, which is dinner at the same Italian restaurant with a friend and colleague. And having a big old glass of red wine. And it was one of those restaurants where you, there's a piece of paper on the table and you can write on the table and they crumple it up. And we were talking about Bring Your Human to Work and talking about the, the feedback from the book. And it occurred to me in that moment that what many of the people in the book were doing, many leaders or many people in their own lives to create a more human culture they were actually using rituals as a as a tool to make people feel more connected to each other, you know, to your boss, the people that work for you, to clients. And so it, it was just this weird aha moment where I said, wow, it was a dot connecting moment. And I said, I want to begin to better understand the science of rituals and why they're good for us as people and how they can impact our business. And that's how it all started. It's so fascinating because there are a lot of different things that have happened in my life that I've just sort of done intuitively. And then there's broad-based proof kind of for those things. And, you know, I'm an incredibly ritualistic person. I made the commitment a few years ago to be systematic in my rituals, particularly in my morning rituals. And I think it was after listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast about Mm -hmm. morning routines and now everyone's sort of talking about that. And, and this month I have been doing this mindfulness meditation challenge through Insight Timer, mostly to kind of support that community. Mm-hmm. And each morning 
the person, a different practitioner on their platform leads a meditation, but before that they share information about their morning routine. And do you have a morning routine? I do have a morning routine and I'll I'll share what it is, but I'll also share where I feel like for me, it went from being a routine to a ritual because I do think those two things can be different. So my morning routine now ritual is, is my morning coffee. And every day, wherever I am in the world, assuming there is a Starbucks, that is my place. And actually, as an aside, my book, Bring Your Human to Work, the title was inspired by my Starbucks barista, um, who I got to know in a very personal way. So for all these years, I would go to Starbucks, I would get my coffee, and it was, it was part of my routine. I would sit down in the store And I would have my Moleskine notebook. I'm pretty old school when it comes to loving the Moleskine notebooks. Have my to-do list and and just feel like, oh, I'm superwoman. I'm cranking out my to-do list. And it's like not even eight o'clock in the morning. And one day it hit me that I hadn't even tasted the coffee. And I love coffee. I'm not a big, I don't drink it all day long. um, But I love that first cup of coffee. I, I guess that you could say I'm even obsessed about it. Like I think about it and I'm so excited about it when I, go, <laughs> when, when I go to bed in the morning. I mean, it's really insane. So I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a bummer. I didn't even taste the coffee. So I made a shift and it really was this intentional shift to get the coffee and to pause. And I'm not a huge meditator. I've tried. I probably should be. It's always on my list of things to do in my resolution bucket every year. But I began to take, this is probably seven years ago now, to take the coffee, feel the heat on my hands, take a couple deep breaths, and then you know take that first sip and feel the, the, the warmth of the coffee sort of going through my, my body. And that shift made it become a ritual. And in, in the book and in my definition of ritual, there is this elevated sense of experience and meaning around a ritual. So I guess I would say it's both my morning routine and my morning ritual. Thank you for that clarification. And that was one of the things that I really was interested in, in your book and and wanted to ask about. And part of that for me is the association of a routine it's not always necessarily positive, right? I mean, it, it could be something that it, it could be a have to instead of a get to. Whereas the way I think about a ritual, it's more of a get to than a have to. Yeah, I yes, I agree because I think many times it's it's intentional. I mean, you know, some people have said they're when they hear the word ritual, there can be negative associations with it for some people. Um, but I would say, by and large, for most, there it's, it tends to feel positive, and it feels something that we are choosing to do, aspiring to do, and it makes us feel good. I was reading the article that you wrote that was featured in Maria Shriver's Sunday morning missives, and what you talked about was moving away from resolutions and, and into rituals. And, and there's something about that same kind of strategy in, in what we're talking about. But one of my takeaways from that article was some of the resolutions that you listed were mine as well. 
And I wondered in your research, if you found that there are certain things that, that the majority of people kind of want to work on and, and how you're, how your strategies are making people maybe more successful uh, at, at some of these kind of large, large hopes. Right. I mean, I, I hope that that's true. I start with my values. You know, what is important to me? And that, you know, there are some values that are going to be consistent all the time. You know, there are va- values and goals that, you know, may, may shift, but we can only take on so much. So one of the things I try to do, whether it's in the beginning of the year, and I, I constantly go back and revisit, one is I ask myself the question, you know, does my calendar reflect my values? You know, there's only so much time in the day. Now, that's separate from a resolution around, you know, eating better or, you know, drinking water. Um, but if you can start with what's really important to you, it becomes much easier to integrate these positive rituals, you know, into your, into your life. And so, you know, one example that comes to mind, I feel like for all these years, you know, and you and I have kids similar ages, you know, there's always this pressure, you know, you got to have family dinners and, you know, your kids will go to jail if you don't have family dinner. (laughs) And, you know, it's, and it felt like, I mean, not that I didn't want to have dinner with my family, but we were running around and things came up and, and, but I always felt like, you know, I, I started off every January with this, with this goal and, you know, like many 80% of rituals by February fail. And I did, and I felt badly about it, but I flipped it um, over the last couple of years and really decided to think about, you know what, what's important to me, what's important to our, our family in terms of feeling connected um, versus this is what I feel like I have to do in terms of external pressure. And so I, I almost, it's funny the way that you phrase the question, I really like it because it did almost go from a have to, to a want to, and it, and it goes back to the why, um, you know, why is this important for, you know, the well-being of our family, which family dinner is, you know, why is drinking water, you know, important to me, to my body? Um, that tends to help. I mean, the water one, I haven't cracked the code on that one. If anybody listening can help me figure out how to make drinking more water a ritual, um, you know, I would love that. I mean, actually, one idea that somebody just shared with me, which I am going to try, my, uh, the way that my book is structured is that we have rituals you know, in the morning and in the evening, rituals around taking breaks, rituals around having meals. And I do think, especially now with people on Zoom all day long, the importance of taking a break from a health and wellness standpoint is exponentially more important. And so I talk about every 90 minutes, there's research around why that helps us maintain our optimal level of energy. So my plan, I'll let you know how it goes, is to try to build this water drinking into my already established rituals of taking breaks during the day. So sometimes it's just a suggestion, right? So as you brought up the drinking water, which I had noticed was one of yours and is one of mine, I actually just got up and walked to the refrigerator and filled up a glass of water. So I drink water as we are recording. And I have always had a little bit of a kind of anti-authoritarian tendency and I, I sometimes bristle with this idea of doing things because I'm supposed to, 
right? But yet there are a lot of things that we're supposed to do that are amazing. And and we are a big family dinner family. And I I set some goals in the last like 18 months, hadn't set any goals in, in a long time, and then have been looking at them every quarter, kind of giving myself a grade on how I'm doing, focusing on them. And part of that, some of my goals for for 2020, probably like many people's, were not exercisable. (laughs) There were just things that were prevented totally beyond my control. And one of them was was quantitative. It was really numbers-based. And when I just did my third quarter review, because I I started a different time, I, I didn't hit one of the numbers-based ones, but one of the things that I feel like I got in exchange was hundreds of family dinners. And that was that was one of the things that I felt really good about. I mean, my kids finally were like, Mom, can you just go out to dinner with someone else? <laughs> you know, like, can we can we not do two goods and a bad tonight? Can we can we just have like kids' dinner? So I mean, I guess everyone thinks that maybe there can be too much of a good thing too. But the water thing, oftentimes when I write in my journal before I go to sleep at night and I think about the one thing that I could have done differently to make the day better. I do say drink more water. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I just, but, but one of the things I often say, and it's sort of cheesy and you'll have to excuse the pot, but, you know, left to our own devices, you know, we're not connecting with ourselves, with others, drinking our water. Like we have to, at least for me, I have to be intentional. Like I have yeah. to build it in or I just find that with all the different balls that I am juggling, it's going to fall by the wayside. You know, even during the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I had been on airplanes every week and traveling and uh, everything stopped. So one would think, right, that I would have so much time to sit and exercise and, um, you know, drink water and do all those things. But I didn't. Like, oh, the day would go by and I didn't do it. Yeah. Well, I like the expression that busy people get the most stuff done and that pulling like the stop on the train, right. Where, which is what happened in March, you know, it's like, you know, um, to have everything just stop like that, uh, instead of like slowing down, you know, it was so jarring and to go from having an incredibly full calendar and traveling every week to having like an empty calendar for months was just almost like a, philosophical adjustment that I don't know that anyone had ever been prepped for, frankly. No, <laughs> I don't think any of us had been been prepped for this. And it took, and I'm sure like a long time to, to even just now, just starting to settle into this, this pace and the not traveling and the, I don't know, I'm still, I think I, I'm excited for that to come back. But I think that along with it, you know, many good things have come in the sense that remote work is here to stay. We realize that we can get work done from home, that my hope is that FaceTime is less of a thing. FaceTime, you know, not not, not FaceTime on your cell phone, FaceTime as in, you know, you have to check in and uh, you know, check in at a certain time of day, check out and, and all of that. I do believe in the importance of being face-to-face 
in an organization when we can finally get there. And I'm sure for you and your world in a, in a museum, right, we need to be able to come in and you want your staff to be there. So I think we'll be able to hopefully find that sweet, I talk about finding the sweet spot between tech and connect. And I, mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about what this hybrid workforce may look like as we begin to come back to these physical spaces. And my hunch and my hope is that rituals can actually help create those touch points, those those connections. But the jury's out as people are just starting to, to make their way back in. What are some of your most surprising learnings in the last year? Around, just in, gen, in general or around rituals or just with this whole pa- pandemic? I would say in all three of those categories, really. I mean, you're someone who's so mindful and so perceptive. And I, I'm just curious some of the things that, that you noticed this year. <laughs> one of, well, one of them sort of chuckling when you say this, one of them is, um, I said, I had a post on my Instagram and I, I had a picture of my husband holding a plate of food and it said, I love you, but not for lunch. I'd say that was one of my big takeaways that like, I, it's just nice when you can go to work and come home and, and not all be together, you know, all day. I got that line from my friend's grandmother, I guess, when her, when my friend's grandmother's husband retired and she's like, honey, go find something to do. I love you for, but not for lunch. So I, 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 that, that is, that has become, become true. I, I realize that I do value my independence and being a working mom and being able to go and, and do that. And it's been much harder I think and been thinking a lot about all of the women that have left the workforce. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people that I know, like I'll just because of all the kids being home from school and how we've made so many women have made so many strides in the workplace. And I worry that we have just taken twenty steps back because you know somebody had to make sure that the that you know, the kids were getting onto Zoom. And actually I just did a, I did a podcast, one of my podcasts, which is called Left to Our Own Devices with the former um, head of marketing for Peloton. And she has three young kids. And as we, you know, we got on, I think around nine o'clock in the morning. And she said to, she had, she had a very specific window. She could only interview between nine and 9.45 because she had to get her kid onto Zoom and then get her kindergartner off of Zoom. and she said on the on the podcast that she was surprised but actually not surprised that with the seven other kindergartners on the Zoom all of the people getting their kids settled in the morning were the moms all of them and many of them worked and so you know that's more of a you know it, it, it's the state of where we are right now and it's something that i have been thinking a lot about and and really it's been keeping me up at night uh, I don't know if it's a it's a big takeaway, but it's something that I think again intentionally we're going to have to begin to to figure that out. Yeah, I mean that is something I've been thinking a lot about too, and honestly, it, it's not a surprise to me. And I've actually started talking a little bit even before the pandemic, but really 
I just took a new job and I told a story to that search committee about when I had made the decision to actually move from being a museum curator to a museum director. And it was because my, I mean, there were a lot of reasons for it, but, you know, looking back when you talk about like the aha moment at that Italian restaurant, you know, looking back, I had done an exhibition. I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast really, but I had done an exhibition with an artist named Simran Gill. And I was on maternity leave with my second child and she was not taking the bottle. So breastfeeding. And I wanted to bring her to this donor bin. These I did these matrix chats. And of course, like she would be downstairs with, you know, my former husband and, and, you know, anyway, my male boss told me that I couldn't do that. I had to choose between feeding her and um, coming to the donor event. So I went to the event, Robin Wright's house, and the artist could tell something was was wrong. And, and she said, what is it? And I told her the story. And I told her that, you know, my former husband and my daughter, who was super little, were like driving around in the car <laughs> in the neighborhood. Um, and that I was going to say I had to use the restroom and go outside and feed her. and. Anyway, the artist told the donor and they both said, that's ridiculous. And the donor said, you know, tell me what time you need to do that. And I'll give a collection tour and I'll make it as long as it needs to be, number one. And number two, have Chris and your daughter come inside and we'll get them comfortable and we'll send food to the room that Chris is in. And and anyway, it was just a decision then to um, take this leadership role and to really consciously um, treat people differently than I had been treated. And I think when women are in a position of power, you know, part of that responsibility is to be really transparent around the complexities of doing both. And I, I hope that people continue to make space for um, the awkwardness, right? That that it often entails to, to do both. But but this is a this is, I believe, a, a silver lining of the pandemic, which is like it or not, we are looking into each other's living rooms, kitchens, bedrooms, and the days where you know the women would try to hide the kids, you know, under the yeah. table and yeah, yeah, even, yeah. The, even the dog barking, like we have nothing else going on in our lives and focusing on work. You know, the cat's out of the bag. Everybody has. Um, things going on outside of work. So I think that the days of, you know, trying to hide that are, I hope are over. I hope that, that what, what the pandemic has brought, you know, I mean, I've had more meetings and calls with kids on people's laps and, you know, we just moved into this new apartment and I was taping an interview and the phone's ringing. I have no idea how to turn it off. Like, it goes back to when I wrote, bring your human to work. Um, you know, when people feel safe and they can bring their whole self to the workplace and not have to hide the fact that they have a kid or an elderly parent they're taking care of or a health issue, it's good for the people involved and, and good for business. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And I just try and model that behavior. And interestingly, I, I wrote a, a blog post about it and someone who used to work for me, who's now in Australia, ended up seeing it. And, and she said she remembers when she came for her job interview and her 
babysitter didn't show up. And I said, bring your kid. And, and I actually ended up holding her kid through most of the interview. You know, <laughs> um, it's, yeah, but I mean, it gives I, you a different kind of connection when that happens. And, and what I've, one thing I've been saying to a lot of people recently, which is, you know, I hope six months from now, we're all not on zoom all the time, but I don't, I hope that we don't forget what we saw and how we felt. And I think for the people that can hold on to that, you know, those, like the, the, the details and the depth of the relationships that, that they've been able to build for some, for some people in certain roles, it's a gift. You know, I talked to the people in marketing and sales, like you're getting to know people as people and that's why people do business with you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Can you give our listeners some tactical strategies that you share in the book? Like, what about someone who feels just kind of overwhelmed by life right now? Uh, I like the expression, you know, how do you eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time? Right. What's a good place to start? So the last chapter in the book is about designing your own roadmap, you know, where to start. And you know, the, the book is how to, you know, how rituals can transform everyday routines into workplace magic, but rituals, as we know, are for your personal life, your professional life, and really everything in between. And of course, these days, our professional life and our personal life are one as we're all working from mm-hmm. home. So when I think about designing your own roadmap, what I, what I urge people to think about is the roadmap in two ways. The first is you know, kind of what we've already been talking about, a day in your life. You know, what is your, you know, if you were to map out your day, your routine from, you know, what do you typically do in the mornings? Or is there an opportunity to add something in in the mornings at mealtime when we take breaks, which we've got to build in times these days for our health and wellness around breaks. The transition from working to home. Many people have been creating rituals around this fake commute because they realized that even though they didn't like the traffic, there was a lot that they got out of that commuting time. And finally, rituals at the end of the day. So map out your day. Think about things that you already do. Think about you know, this, this question of, you know, what do you do in your life that makes you feel most like you? And when you answer that question, those are the usually the opportunities that are most ripe to, to try out some rituals or even to acknowledge some things that you already do that are rituals and kind of elevate them and celebrate them and acknowledge that these are things that you're doing. So figure out where in the day based on your schedule, based on whether you have kids at home, based on whether you're a morning person, a night person, and, and, you know, try some things out from a work perspective, depending on your role. um, I mapped out the, the roadmap in terms of the employee experience so think about rituals in terms of how you onboard new employees, you know, especially now. You know, we talk about the impact of rituals on psychological safety and belonging. You know, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And that first day at work is really important. So think about onboarding. Think about opportunities for rituals in meetings. How you celebrate milestones, you know, somebody that an employee's birthday or work anniversary you know, maybe training and professional development. So kind of map these things out and and figure out where you think are, you know, almost like the low-hanging fruit or the the easiest place to start. You know, one example I can share of of an organization that was doing something, didn't necessarily realize it was a ritual and then was able to 
transition and continue this during the pandemic is a, it's a really cool agency in Houston called Black Sheep. This woman, Amy Woodall, is a total rock star. And when I was talking to her about, they have all these different rituals, but, but she said the one that made them feel most like them was every Friday, they stop what they're doing and they have Champagne Friday. And the idea is to celebrate their wins and not just their big wins. Like let's celebrate the small stuff. They're, they're booming, growing um, agency based in Houston. And if they don't, if they're not intentional to stop and smell the roses and celebrate each other, um, it's not going to happen. So that's a big part of their culture. The pandemic hits all of a sudden, and this is always in person, everybody goes home. And I got, I really got goosebumps when she, she wrote me an email and she said, I just want you to know that once we started quarantining in the beginning of the week and on Friday, our first Friday home, we all got on Zoom and we had our champagne Friday. And she said, well, it wasn't as good as being in person. Um, she said, just by doing it made us feel safe and connected and that everything was going to be okay. It reminded us why we do what we do. It gave us a sense of purpose. And so what I liked about that example, as it relates to your question, is that, you know, thinking about how can you try to right now for leaders who might feel overwhelmed, you know, start with something that's a ritual that you had before this pandemic and, and try to maintain it. And you'll see the bump in, in connection, even just from doing things now that you had done before the pandemic. Erica, this is such powerful work and such powerful language. And even the concept of asking someone or giving someone the permission or giving oneself the permission to think about what it is you do that makes you feel the most like you. Yep. And connecting to that idea of the unique essence of everyone, right? We yeah. each have our own unique essence and how much time people might spend actually trying to be someone for someone else uh, rather than, you know, who they are just really at their core. And I think this idea of ritual really allows the opportunity to, to kind of reconnect with self in, in that really, really powerful way. Yep, exactly. How does your family feel about increased attention on, on some of these topics? <laughs> well, I do have to ask permission to post any photos of my children, um, which is fine. They, I think they, everyone does. Honestly. I know. Well, the one I'm like, I did pose, I did pose one picture and my daughter's like, I'm going to report you. I was like, you know, to the, the Facebook police, I guess. Um, so yes, but I, I think, you know, they, they, um, they, they laugh. I mean, they, interestingly, um, you know, they're very, well, they're very supportive. I will say they, you know, my son, Daniel, who's the funniest, I feel like he could, he could do my keynote speech for me. He knows all my, all my lines and they all sort of make fun of me in a loving kind of a way. But when they were able to experience some of these issues around rituals firsthand, and when we started quarantining back in March, it goes back to the story of, of Amy Woodall and their Champagne Friday, but but we can see how this relates to our, our home life and our kids. 
I, you know, it was very stressful time. My mom was sick. She ultimately ended up passing away in April, not from COVID, but it was right in the beginning and things were just crazy. I mean, you remember we were, you know, still everybody was wiping down their groceries. No one really knew what was going on. So it was a very scary time, even for my kids who were 17, 17 and 15. So we started quarantining and that first Tuesday, we started quarantining on a Thursday. So the couple days later, I decided that we were going to have Taco Tuesday, which has always been a ritual in our house. I'm not such a great cook, so tacos are easy. So we have Taco <laughs> Tuesday. So I didn't, I didn't give it much thought, and, and I'm in the kitchen. Everybody comes in, and we sit down. And I see the looks on their faces as they came into the kitchen and smelled the Taco Tuesday. And again, rituals can be very sensory. You know, what you hear, what you feel, like with the coffee on my on the cup on my hands. And I could see this, almost this elevation, this, this transition in their faces and how, and their shoulders, like the stress going down that, you know what, like, we're going to be okay. Like we had taco Tuesday three weeks ago when we didn't even know what COVID was, you know, we're up in Connecticut and school is canceled and my grandma's sick and we don't know what's going on, but we feel part of this family and there's safety in that, and we're going to be okay. And we ended up talking about it, but I do think that now a lot of this has become personal to them from a ritual standpoint because they, you know, they hear me talking about it quite a bit. But with with, with COVID, many of these kids have experienced things that we really wish they <laughs> haven't had to experience. Yeah. It's just funny because I'm not the best cook either. And we have tacos a lot for a comparable (laughs) reason. Uh, It's also like participatory and there's an element of choice to it, right? Like you get to pick which ingredients and how much and it's tacos are and making tacos are somehow like a nice metaphor for life too, you know, because you can kind of like pick and choose and, and, you know, have more of something or less of something else. And, you can, you know, enjoy that. And then the next one you can make a little bit differently based on, you know, what you just experienced. So I like that kind of opportunity to be able to adapt in real time. Right. So you and I know each other originally, I would say from, from art, um, at least tangentially, you know, through art and through a community. Can you talk a little bit about what you think about art and why you think art matters and and you can connect it to ritual if if you want to. You know, I didn't grow up in a family that ever really talked about art. We didn't have art. You know, I mean, we had some nice things on the walls, some prints and some, but, but art wasn't really part of, of our lives. Um, Except for the fact that my grandfather um, my mother's father really was into art and really taught me a lot about art. I actually have a piece of of art from his collection when he passed away. He spent a number of years living in Santa Fe, New Mexico and had a lot of Native American art. So it was really a, a bonding and a connection um, an opportunity to connect with my with my grandfather and learn about art through him. Um, now in my life, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to have art in, in my home and, you know, my husband and I enjoy, you know, finding art and learning about art. I mean, I will say that I haven't had 
as much time as I would have wanted over the last number of years. And I've almost, it's funny, my husband spent more time thinking about art than I have given that I was writing two books and, and doing a lot of other things, but it is something that I really enjoy. When I think about art for us as a family, it's less about, you know, we need to, you know, we want to find, an, you know, a piece of art because someone told us it's great and it's going to be worth something at some point someday. We are very, we love the story. We love the narrative. And so we like to always try to have some interesting connection um, to a piece of art, almost thematically. Like my husband loves math and science and um, likes to think about how things are are made. Um, and so that that's that's part of how art is is part of our lives and in terms of how we talk about it. That idea of of how it's made and and then potentially like why it's made and then what those objects can convey being or coexisting in the space, you know, with you and your family, I think is one of the most powerful things about art. Yeah. And, and it's funny. So we, you know, we just moved into this new place and, you know, my, and my kids were like, mom, you're going to have to, you know, get the shtick down to be able to like tell everybody what things are and how things were made. And I was like, okay, I'm going to put that on my list. Um, once, once we figure out, once I figure out where the silverware goes, but, but yeah, it's, um, you know, being able to, I mean, I know the stories, but not in a detailed way enough to, you know, be a, be a real, you know, tour guide, but to be able to share those stories um, with, with people that come into our home. I'm interested to have you talk a little bit about the transition that you made from your kind of traditional nine to five work environment to writing these books and, and giving talks and sharing your wisdom in a in a broader way. Can you talk about that that decision for you and yeah. how it's how it's felt? Because I, I think that it's not necessarily that it was a pivot because it's the same area of, of knowledge and expertise, but the functionality of, of how you communicated those, those findings is different. And I'd love to have you talk about that. So I, yeah, I agree. It's all very interconnected, but it's complete, but, but, but at the same time, it's, it's completely different. And I feel like I made the shift rather, rather gradually. You know, I do a lot of career coaching and I think it goes back to saying to yourself, you know, what are your priorities in any given time, given all the things you have going on in your life? I mean, I've been in certain jobs where I've stayed longer than I probably should have or could have given that the ages of my kids or given that I could have done, you know, I, at one point I, you know, there was a job and I, I could do it with my eyes closed, but given all the other things I had going on, that was enough. You know, it was enough mm-hmm. for me when my kids were little to be able to get up, get dressed, get out of the house, do something that I felt like I was really good at since I think parenting is, is so hard. Um, and then once I got to the point when my kids were a little older, I said, all right, you know what, I'm ready for something that has more challenge and my priorities were different. So I, you know, when you and I met, we met in Colorado, I had actually, 
you know, and I will say I, I was very lucky to have this opportunity. You know, we, we usually, we used to go to Colorado in the summer and then one year, literally just spontaneously, we just didn't go back to New York. We stayed there. And so I couldn't keep my job at NYU in the business school, which I loved, but you had to be there in person. So I left my job and really was just open to whatever might come next. I think at the time I assumed I'd probably go back to a, to a job in an office. But one of the things that I always coach people on and something that I try to do myself is to always just be open to possibilities and, and put yourself out there and, and connect with people. And being in, in Aspen, Colorado, specifically in the summer with the Ideas Festival, there's always different people to meet. And I went to a talk with a woman named Sherry Turkle, who I hadn't heard of at the time, even though she had written a number of books. And at the time, her, her book that came out that was called um, Alone Together. And that's sort of how I was feeling. It was 2010, and I was walking around with two phones and and you know, trying to juggle the integration of this technology in my life. And so I went to her talk and bought her book, got in the line, and we struck up a conversation. And we just went out for coffee, like right then in that moment. And I think being open to A, connect with people and not always having a plan of where it's going to lead. But I always try to make a point every week to have conversations with people just to you know deepen certain relationships or meet new people. And we went out for coffee and she said something that really resonated. And I said to her, look, I know you met me 20 minutes ago, but you're doing some really interesting work. And if you're open to it, I would love to help you on, she was writing a book at the time and I offered to help her on her book. And ultimately it's a long story, but it went back and forth a few times. She ultimately said yes. And I did that as um, on the side, I guess everybody now refers to it as a side hustle. For me, it was just a little side project. So it wasn't my job, but literally for a year and a half, I invested time and energy learning this new world you know, simultaneous to, to doing everything else I was doing, not quite knowing where it would lead. And after her book came out a year and a half later, I had, you know, sort of invested enough in my own professional development to feel like I could actually give, give this a shot. Um, I will say in, in all, you know, to be completely transparent, you know, not everybody can do this. I mean, I was not the sole breadwinner. So I did have some cushion and, and some flexibility, which many people don't. Many people do what I do in addition to, you know, their other nine to five job. So there's the financial piece, but then there's the, you know, skills, talent, do I just go for it piece? And you know, I'm I'm not I'm a pretty planful, organized person. So I feel like my strategy was to do it in a way that was low risk, invest a ton of time to learn these new skills, and and you know, I'd never written a book. I had you know, it was a total new world. But I felt that one of my goals, if I was able to make this transition, was that I love doing public speaking. I thought it would be amazing if I could travel around, speak, have somebody pay me, and then leave and not necessarily get into the weeds. Because coming from consulting, all I did was kind of help other people fix their, you know, their issues and their companies. So that was really the the goal behind it. And so I, I guess I just kind of jumped and um, 
gave it a shot. And again, I think you can't tell that part of the story with the other that I did have a cushion to fall on if, if it didn't work out. I think it is important to acknowledge kind of the duality of that approach. But the main thing I think to underscore from it is the courage that you displayed. And I think we've all heard, I think, too many stories of people who just feel like they're kind of phoning it into their lives or their jobs or their existences. And there's the, I think, the broader hope and goal of, of not just having like a good life, but having an extraordinary life. And, and so how do you get there? And I heard kind of two things in, in that story. One is the courage to invest in yourself and believe in yourself and that knowledge that you have something to offer. And the earlier story or the earlier point in your story that it doesn't necessarily all have to happen at the same time, right? There are times in your life where you can coast at work or go a little more slowly or prioritize taking care of your family. And so you stay in a job longer or or whatnot and, and showing yourself kind of a, a grace during that, during that period as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's different quote unquote jobs that, that are better at a certain time of your life based on what different things are going on. You don't have to have it all, all, all at once. Um, and yeah, I think that ongoing professional development and this desire to continue to learn is something that has always, you know, served me well and, and being willing and open to doing it without knowing what the return mm-hmm. is going to be you know, but just doing it for the sake of moving, you know, and I love your, what you said, you know, having this extraordinary life. I think what strikes me now, and I feel so lucky is that when I think about, you know, when people say, you know, how would you describe yourself? Or if, if, if you talk to people who knew me, you know, in, in grammar school and business school and working and in my you know, life now as an adult where you and I really overlap and the one word people would most use to describe me, the world would, the word would be a connector. So I've always been a connector. I'm passionate about making connections, whether it was my role in recruiting, connecting people to jobs, whether it was, I ended up setting up three people to get married, which, you know, I guess as someone who's Jewish means I'm going right to heaven, but it's just like in my blood, right? I love to make connections And so I feel so lucky that having invested this time, I am now able to really do what I feel like I was meant to do in in my work and kind of do it on my terms. And I think it's very difficult to get there unless you invest in yourself in different ways over the course of your career. Like it's not going to just happen. Maybe some people get lucky, but, you know, as my husband says, his, his favorite quote um, which led to my daughter's middle name is uh, Chance favors the prepared mind. So Julia's middle name is Chance. Amazing. It's amazing. And what you're talking about really is purpose and understanding, you know, what our life's purpose is. And there is so much research about the incredible things that people can withstand challenges and traumas and, you know, physical pain if you know that what you're doing is part of something greater, right? Like that you're in service of some, some larger purpose. Yep. One of the things that I have 
had sort of a, a realization about in the last week or so is I've always been a working mom. I, I worked before I had kids. I worked while I was pregnant. I've worked, you know, always. I haven't ever been a mom um, without, without working. And I always hated these kind of popular cultural articles that would say, it's a myth. Women can't have it all, you know, and and every time, you know, every five years or something like that, there would be a movement where where that would come out. It would just make me um, kind of work harder at both being a mom and and being a worker or an employee. And and the other day, I had this thought that it doesn't have to be a fight. Like I don't have to be kind of like fighting against this collective societal notion. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier, like that the get to versus have to, right? right? Like I get to do this and I can also choose that I can do it all and I don't have to do it all at the exact same time to the exact same level. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it goes back to, does my calendar reflect my values and where should I put right. put my energy and, and giving, look, giving ourselves a break. I mean, we are the hardest we tend to be the hardest on ourselves. Uh, we as women, stereotypically, are often, we're taking care of the world um, all the time. And, you know, I really believe in the importance of making sure that, you know, when I talk about, you know, connecting with others, it's also taking time to to take care of and connect, you know, with, with ourselves. And a part of that is not doing everything we need to do at that same level. You've got to figure out what, what can give. You described yourself as a connector. And I think that is completely apt and, and like a perfect um, kind of one word. If one could only use one word to describe you, do you have a, do you have a personal mission? Um, I don't know if I have a personal mission. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about that. Do you have a personal mission? What's your personal mission? I would say that my personal mission is to connect people to art, to make their lives better. I love that. Yeah. It's been helpful to me because then I can make decisions based on that, you know? Well, right. So I often talk about like at, in the workplace when, you know, if you have values, you know, a mission and values, it's, it's helpful. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to frame and write down. I don't want to put something together on the spot because I have a lot of ideas. So I think I have a lot of different pieces that would go into my personal mission, but I really like the way that you distill it down. You know, it's like a company mission, which, which I really like. So I often talk about from a work perspective, you know, when you're at the fork in the road, should you hire this person? Should you fire this person? Look, you just took a new job, right? Should you take this new job? Um, should you move somewhere? Um, the litmus test, I mean, it's great to be able to do that through the lens of your of your values and of your mission. And is it aligned? Yeah. And, and that's, as you said earlier, you know, we're now living in a time where most people's kind of personal and professional lives have bled together. And that is one of the things I think that's always been kind of a truism of, of my career and, and 
in my field, right? The art world, there isn't really a line between the personal and professional because so many people that are in it are in it for personal passion, both, you know, who work in it and who support it. Um, Anyway, it, it, it is both, I think, personal and professional and it is helpful to me, you know, to be able to have that um, there was a, a curator's conference a number of years ago where a colleague of mine, Anthony Huberman, stood up and and said, uh, you know, what what do you stand for? And I had right. never really been asked that. And I figured out that day that I, I stand for the possibility of transcendence. And I don't know if that's my vision, but but that is definitely something that I go back to a lot. Mm-hmm. I love that. I feel like we might have the topic of your third book discovered. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's funny, but I, I almost think it's, it's like childbirth that you forget all the pain and the bad parts. And then you go back to the well and do it again. I never thought I'd read a second book. So I guess I shouldn't say I'll never write a third because who knows? Well, Erica, what I have learned is that the few times in my life that I said I would never do something, that is exactly what I've ended up doing. So that seems to be like a, a challenge to the universe or something. Yeah. It's like, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I see you're never, and I'm going to double down on it. So let me just end by asking you, when people ask you for advice, what do you say? What do I, you mean, do I say yes or no? I'll give you advice or what is my advice? Both. Both. <laughs> well, it's fine. I, I, I clarified because I was on a call yesterday um, being interviewed about, about trying to network and connect with people and get advice during a pandemic um, and, and career related stuff. And so when people, um, you know, reach out and, you know, ask me advice, you know, you also can't make time for every single person to, to sit down with them. So my advice, I guess, depends on the question, you know, that, that I'm asked. So I'm not quite sure how to answer this question. I err on the side of being somebody who's willing to sit down with someone and hear their questions and give them advice. You know, my background is a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what I go, I go back to is this, I think about things through this lens and maybe this is my, it goes back to my mission, which I'll circle back to you on when I, when I get it crystallized as well as, as you have yours. But my advice, I would say typically comes through the lens of honor, you know, honoring relationships. When in doubt, you don't know what to do. Turn left, turn left, turn right, do this for a person. Don't do it. Take the job. Um, get married, say this to your kid, think about how you're going to act and be and the decisions you're going to make through the lens of honoring relationships with everyone in your life, but most importantly, honoring that relationship with yourself. Oh, so good. See, I knew you would have it. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, that's right. Because otherwise, what else is there? Right. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. I I don't know. I guess I've had a lot of these kind of um, realizations just in the last few weeks. And another one that I had the other day, which I took the time to share with my kids and they were both sort of like rolling their eyes, but I said, you know, (laughs) look at me, like I'm, I'm telling you, I just had what's maybe the most important 
answer to life's questions, like the meaning of life and, and, you know, what you said kind of emphasizes that. So my, uh, my realization the other day was the very most important thing is to love yourself. And of course, we've all heard that before, but why I say that as kind of like the key to life is because exactly what you're saying, wherever you go, like there you are, right? And mm-hmm. your relationship to yourself has to be first because you need to love yourself before you can love anyone else, before you can love what you do, before you can, I mean, just fill in the blank, right? Like love yourself first. That has that that has to be that has to be kind of the answer to everything. Yep. Easier said than done sometimes, but it's, it's, a thousand percent. it's a great way to end because you've got, you've got to start there and do the work. Yeah. The simplest things are the hardest. And just because you know, the answer doesn't mean that it's, that it's easily done. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. And congratulations on your book. I, have my pre-ordered copy. And of course I got to read the PDF, but I can't wait to have the tangible one in my hands. Well, thank you. I really love this conversation. Me too. Me too. Say hi to Jeff and your kids. (laughs) I will. And I'll see you soon. Okay, good. Bye. Bye. Conversations about art is part of heisey.art a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simonilla. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.